Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Here at Jew in the City, um, not only do we want to reverse negative associations that people have about religious Jews, we also want to make Orthodox Judaism um, engaging, accessible, um, and really relevant for modern times. Um, growing up as a non-practicing Jew, I had a lot of hang-ups with um, halacha, with things in the Torah. Um, while on one hand I was so proud to be Jewish and felt, uh, you know, really brimming with positivity about our, cu our culture, our heritage, our history, um, even some of the traditions, there was um, sort of a second feeling that I carried around, which was certain parts of our religion are outdated, are anti-women, you know, don't fit with my modern values. And I think for myself, that was a big thing that prevented me from kind of growing in my observance. On one hand, I didn't know that you could even change teams. Like even the concept of becoming a bald shuva was not really taught or, you know, known about in my little conservative Jewish world um, as a kid. Um, but then even if I were to have more interest in increasing my observance, um, I still felt limited by um, parts of the Torah or Halacha that seemed to be not fair. Um, I remember actually when I was getting more into Judaism in high school, at one point the issue of polygamy really stuck out. One night at Hebrew High, I went to an after-school Hebrew High School, and one night polygamy came up and I was just really miffed at that point, like what kind of religion could this be and how could that be fair and how can we allow it? That's for a different topic. Um, but one area that um, I think is really hard to understand, sort of wrap your head around, is the idea of inheritance as um, explained in the Torah. You know, it's an over 3,000-year-old document, and it seems to be challenging when women don't have the same ability to inherit as men do. Um, so today, joining us to sort of dig into this issue and understand um, what we've been able to do with sort of modern halakhic tools, I have with me Rabbi Shlomo Weitzman, who is the director of the Bezdin of America. Uh, Rabbi Weissman received rabbinical ordination from Reitz in 2001, advanced rabbinical ordination Yadin Yadin in 2014. He's a graduate of Columbia Law School, where he was um, Harlan Fixstone Scholar. Prior to his association with the Bezdin of America, Rabbi Weissman worked as an attorney at several prominent law firms, including Deborah Voice and Plimpton LLP. A Columbia Law School grad like my husband. Um, nice to speak to you, Rabbi Weissman. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. So I guess if we could start first for anyone listening who's not familiar, um, what is the Bezdin of America? What role does it serve? You know, what do you do as its director? Sure, sure. I'm happy to talk a little about that. The Bezdin of America is uh, uh, an organization that's probably not as well known as uh, as the impact we have, uh, or I, that I hope we have. Um, we are affiliated with the Rabbinical Council of America, we uh, are supported by the, the OU. Um, we uh, have relationships also with Yeshiva University. So we kind of uh, are at the uh, center of, uh, at least in terms of our affiliations and relationships of a whole bunch of important organizations. And we handle the uh, matters that would ordinarily be handled by a rabbinical court uh, for many segments of the North American Jewish community. Um, primarily, we operate in three areas, I would say. Uh, one is in the matrimonial realm. Uh, if uh, people need a divorce, we are uh, we are the address for many people, especially in the New York area, uh, to do their get, their Jewish divorce. 
Uh, we're also involved in that realm uh, with uh, handling difficult cases where there is recalcitrance, where a husband, let's say, uh, or a wife for that matter, isn't prepared to participate in the process, and then we get involved um, and try to resolve those kind of, of uh, situations. Uh, most prominently, we do so with the help of our prenuptial agreement, which I know, Allison, you've uh, you've talked and written about uh, in the past. It's said a very important document. Maybe we could talk about that in another show. Um, but that's an important tool to prevent the Aguna problem. Uh, it's situations where uh, a spouse is in a marriage that's functionally over but is not prepared to, to give a get. Uh, so that's, that's one-third of what we do. Uh, the second area in which we're involved is commercial arbitration, essentially, uh, running Dine Torah, which are uh, arbitration, um, arbitration pr- the arbitration process to help resolve disputes that arise between Jews or among Jews in the, in the community. Uh, that runs the gamut from business disputes like partnership dissolutions, landlord-tenant disputes, uh, all sorts of uh, financial disputes, um, also sometimes matrimonial disputes. Um, and we do that by, by assigning uh, typically three dianim, three arbitrators, to hear the case. And it's run basically what looks very much like secular arbitration, with um, plaintiff and defendant each uh, presenting their case. We'll hear uh, the case, uh, uh, accept evidence and testimony, and then issue a written decision that's typically, you know, several pages long with the reasoning based on Jewish law um, and with a sprinkling of secular law where appropriate based on, uh, you know, the commercial customs that, that, are, uh, that are in play. Um, so that's, that's the second uh, part of what we're involved in. Uh, and the third uh, activity we get involved in is status determinations. If there are individuals out there who need uh, uh, clarification about their Jewish status, uh, confirm that they are Jewish and uh, eligible to marry a Jew, um, or other halachic uh, status questions that arise, such as Kohen uh, questions, uh, things like that. We'll conduct investigations, uh, we'll issue decisions and issue certificates certifying their status uh, and resolving any ambiguities that, uh, that arise. So we're a pretty um, busy organization, uh, run by a small but dedicated staff, um, and uh, we try to help the community in, in, as, uh, in the best way we can with, with halachic competence, uh, professional sensitivity, um, trying to, trying to, to be as user-friendly in, in, in all these endeavors as we can be. Very nice. And how, how old is the Best of America? Uh, the organization actually started in 1960 as an offshoot of the Rabbinical Council of America. In the mid-1990s, we kind of reorganized with a new board of directors uh, and professionalized some of the operations in a way that was kind of new. We adopted new written rules and procedures for our arbitration cases for the DNA Torah that we handle. Um, we brought on attorneys to be on staff and to staff the cases in some cases. Uh, I'm an attorney, as you mentioned. Um, so that, that kind of modern era of the Best in America began in the mid-1990s. And what is the um, benefit of having sort of this umbrella organization that kind of, I guess, serves the, um, I mean, and probably you're serving beyond the modern to centrist Orthodox community, but what's the argument for why having sort of one centralized um, Bezdin is more effective than a lot of these sort of like more pop-up um, Bate Dinim? 
Well, I think, you know, I think every organization has its appeal and has its benefits. What we offer in, in the world of Bate Din is a heightened sense of professionalism uh, that I think some of the more, um, uh, I should say, some of the, the smaller uh, Bate Din might not have the capability of offering. So we have, a, you know, an office staff that's just very organized, very professional. Um, we uh, have, like, as I mentioned, lawyers on staff, and that's especially important when we're handling the curtration cases that we handle. We're doing so with an eye towards uh, secular norms of arbitration to ensure the enforceability of our decisions. When we issue a decision, it's actually enforceable by the courts because the parties sign an arbitration agreement before the proceedings begin. We adhere to all the legal requirements of an arbitration. Um, we're able to deal with some of the more sophisticated and complex issues that arise uh, in, 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 in uh, the business disputes that we handle. Um, you know, not everything that happens in a typical business is necessarily taught uh, in yeshiva to dayanim who might be sitting on cases. And so it's important that the dayanim uh, have that sophistication, have that understanding of, of, of contemporary business practices, um, and that's something that we offer, I think, that, that, uh, that sets us, uh, uh, sets us uh, ahead of other uh, Batidin, perhaps, um, uh, in a way that, that really benefits the community. That's great. Um, I love, really, the concept of, you know, finding ways to modernize, but at the same time uh, retaining tradition, which I guess is a great segue into our next uh, topic, which is the halachic will. So um, I don't... Even though my husband's a lawyer, we did not get a will until not that long ago, and only because of my urging, and we finally did it. Um, and this was an opportunity for me to see um, what the Bedouin of America has done here. So could you walk us through um, what does the Torah say about women inheriting, and then when, how, why did the Bedouin of America jump in to um, you know, do something to, I guess, modify it, update it, sort of maybe some sort of an attachment to... Um, somehow equalize it in terms of our modern understanding of equality? Sure. The, the basic Torah law on inheritance uh, says that when an individual passes away, uh, his uh, or her sons inherit uh, their wealth, inherit their property. Um, and it's not even divided equally among the sons. The firstborn son, the Bechor, is entitled to what's what the Torah refers to as Pishnayim, as a double portion. So if, let's say, for example, there are four sons, uh, you divide the, the, uh, the estate into five. One son, that, the, that is the Bechor, gets two shares, and the other sons each uh, get one share. Um, daughters, uh, under Torah law, do not inherit, um, although there are expectations about the support that would be provided by the brothers. And that's basically uh, basically how it works. Uh, there's a whole complex uh, complex uh, uh, structure to what happens if there are no sons, or what happens if there are no sons, the daughters will inherit. But w- what happens if there are no sons, or some of the sons are deceased, and they have issue, they have uh, sons of their own. Um, if there are no children, it goes up, you know, level to the to the uh, the father, uh, and then to the father's. Um, children, so you know it's all kind of dealt with in a very systematic fashion. Uh, but needless to say, this order of inheritance uh, is not consistent with what most people would expect uh, would happen upon their death. Most 
parents, especially in the modern age, would expect that their children would all inherit equally uh, without regard to who the Bechor is and without regard to uh, distinguishing between male and female uh, children. Um, and so uh, and so you alluded to a solution. I'll tell you, you alluded to the fact that the best in America has stepped in and, and somehow solved this problem. The, the truth is that the best solution to this problem is more than 500 years old, and it's been... Uh, it, it's been the, the minug, the, the custom, to adopt this solution for, for hundreds of years. The Ramah himself, Ramosha Isserlis, uh, writing in the 1500s, refers to this specific mechanism that I'll get into in a moment as the dominant minug even in his time, the dominant custom even in his time, which means that it preceded even him. Um, mm-hmm. So this is not a new problem and not a new solution, but a, a, a fairly a fairly old uh, old problem. It's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, if you like, should I, should I jump in and describe the the? Yeah, I would like to. Yeah, but I guess the question is, um, if it was already old by like the year five hundred, do you have a sense as to when and why people started being bothered by it? Was it just sort of? Um, I'm saying I'm just trying to think like what period in world history did people start saying like, huh, that doesn't seem like a fair way for um, inheritance to be distributed both between the double portion and women. Do you have any sense of sort of what was going on historically or in what parts of the world that um, affected Jews to say, hey, we got to find a solution to this Torah law? Yeah, I, I would say that, that this is kind of one of those issues. Uh, that affects the economic ordering of, uh, of, you know, family life that has consistently changed over history. Um, you can't expect, and, you know, nor does history reflect any, any assumption that uh, the way people order their economic affairs in one epoch of history, in, you know, in one century, doesn't necessarily uh, uh, predict the way people are going to organize their economic affairs in, uh, in another century. And mm-hmm. so... Um, so there's no question that this is something that this is kind of a problem that presented itself even, you know, five centuries ago, six centuries ago, and that was something that the Rishonim and the, the early Achronim needed to deal with. Um, and uh, you know, the way I kind of think of this is that the Torah, when when we think of Torah, uh, we have to define it not just as a literal reading of the five books of Moses of, of the actual Torah Shabbat, but Torah has a much broader interpretation or a much broader meaning in the sense that it incorporates not only the written Torah but also the oral law, uh, the Torah Shabbat Peh, uh, and, and that includes the kind of dynamic features that Chazal, that the Chachmei Amasor, that the rabbis throughout history, throughout Jewish history, have introduced at various times to deal with, with real-world problems. And they, they, they address problems, they address, you know, real-life real scenarios with two things in mind. Number one, the solutions that they approach problems with adhere to technical requirements of halacha, uh, mm-hmm. so they can't just pull out of their hat some solution that will, uh, that will ignore the, the strictures of, of halacha and what, what it is that we're required to adhere to. Uh, and then the second thing they keep in mind is that the solutions have to adhere and be consistent with Torah values. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in kind of taking that approach, uh, as history unfolds and as time unfolds, you know, sometimes you have monumental shifts in society and the way society orders 
uh, as I said, their economic affairs. Families are structured differently uh, over centuries. Um, uh, the way wealth is passed from generation to generation uh, changes over time as, as we move from an agricultural economy to a mercantile economy to an even more modern economy. Nowadays, things change. And so Chazal kind of have to be on their toes. The rabbis have to be on their toes and uh, figure out a way to balance the Torah's values and to balance with that the, the very practical requirements to ensure that that other values of the Torah will be uh, will be safeguarded. So, for example, if if a literal um, uh, a literal following of of one set of the Torah's laws, namely the inheritance laws, will cause a violation of other Torah values, such as introducing strife into families or leaving vulnerable people uh, impoverished, uh, the rabbis have to have to figure out and have to tinker with the system in a way that, as I mentioned, is consistent with. Uh, the halacha, consistent with uh, basic halachic requirements, but that takes into account the realities of uh, uh, of society. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, you know, this is one of the areas where that's true. It's true in other areas as well. You could think of, for example, um, the prohibition against collecting interest. Uh, right. As as society developed from a agricultural economy to a mercantile economy, uh, it became important to figure out how to uh, how, how Jews could charge interest to each other or charge something that's like interest. And so the rabbis came up with a heteriska, a different way of structuring economic transactions, uh, because if they didn't do that, they would be faced with people not lending money in a way they should, you know, another Torah value. Um, you know, there are myriad examples of, of this kind of development of Allah over history. Mm-hmm. In terms of selling uh, food on Pesach, yeah, that's right. That's another example. And a prisbo is another example where the Torah cancels debts at the end of the, uh, the Jubilee, the 50-year Yovel. Um, mm-hmm. The rabbis were able to fashion a, a, a solution to that because people weren't lending money in anticipation of the canceling of the debt. That's a, a violation mm-hmm. of a Torah value, and so the rabbis needed to step in and safeguard that value and kind of come up with a balance that would work, um, that would work. Great. So if you can now kind of get into the mechanism, like what is, so what started 500 years ago? What was this minhag that the Ramah was referring to? The, the, the minhag that the Ramah refers to is what he recalls a shtar chatzi zachar, which literally means um, a, a document that, that creates rights of a half a male, um, which, um, which has morphed over time to essentially be a shtar kuo zachar. Um, but it works as follows. Kulozachar meaning that they get full uh, rights, uh, equivalent to a male's rights uh, to inherit. Here, here's how the mechanism works. The, um, the parents, let's say the, the, the people who have the wealth, who want to bequeath it to their next generation, uh, so let's say you or I or her, who are writing a will, um, will write a secular will that will comply with secular law and that will be enforceable in the courts. And then separate from that document, I'll write a note of indebtedness that benefits one of my non-halachic heirs. So let's say, for example, I have two sons and a daughter. Uh, I'll create a debt in favor of the daughter that dwarfs the value of my estate. So let's say, for example, I, I anticipate that upon my death, uh, my estate will be worth a million dollars. I'll create an indebtedness that benefits my daughter in the amount of, let's say, $3 million, just to be on the safe side. And 
in that document, I will specify that that debt will be extinguished if my sons agree to follow my secular will. Mm-hmm. And so that presents the sons with a, basically two options upon my death. Either they can uh, assert their halachic rights, mm. uh, set aside my secular will, but if they do that, the whole estate is wiped out by the indebtedness in favor of their sister. And that doesn't mm. work very well for them, so will just get all the money. Uh, so instead what they could do is follow the secular will. That will extinguish the debt, and mm. then they'll do exactly what I wanted them to do, which is to follow the secular will. So it's a pretty neat and elegant solution uh, that basically solves the whole problem in one fell swoop uh, in a way that other suggestions that have been suggested over the years, do, you know, doesn't really do. We do. Um, and was this... Sorry, um, I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry, continue. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was going to say, some of those other suggestions involve putting property in trust uh, or even gifting property during my lifetime to non heirs. But the problem, you know, one of the problems with, with all those solutions and what makes them ultimately not so workable is that halacha doesn't allow me to gift non-existent property to people. Uh, so mm-hmm. e- even if I today start gifting assets to my daughter, um, or putting them in trust, and even in a revocable trust, so that I could still maintain control. It, the problem is that if I acquire property tomorrow, or in a year, or in a decade from now, I'd have to keep on doing that. It's just a constant burden of having to keep on conveying property into trust and making sure that all my trusts are aligned in a way that I, I want to follow the inheritance. Just, it, it's, a, it's a pain in the neck. I, I'd have to keep on doing it, and inevitably I'd forget to take care of some of the funds um, and it, w- it would cause problems. This Shtar Chatsi Zachar, Shtar Kuo Zachar solution that we, that we just mentioned based on the Ramah kind of solves all that problem because it just creates this indebtedness, and I, I can walk away from it. Um, that document will be there um, when they look at my will, and uh, it will it'll automatically essentially align everything with the interest that I, or, or with the, the way that I planned on, on my estate being divvied up. Okay, so a couple of follow-up questions. So does this even out the Bahor getting the double portion? Yeah, this solves all that, all that, all those problems, um, essentially, essentially. Okay, there's a debt that, that's going to be for the daughter unless the sons sort of comply and have everything um, uh, bequeathed evenly. Is that the basic idea? Right, bequeathed in the way that I specify in the will. So whatever I think is the right answer to you know my estate planning uh, uh, goals here, uh, I'll put in my will, and then and then that essentially will become the estate. That'll come become the estate plan, and, and the sons will have to. Now I should mention that there's some halachic pushback, um, or some poskim who point out that. To do this purely in a way that uh, that that uh, that that gets rid of any distinction between males and females, and between firstborn and others, uh, raises kind of some philosophical problems. Because on on the one hand, we want to be fair to everyone, and we want uh, to avoid any kind of strife in the family. But on the other hand, the Torah does set forth a plan, and right. to completely sidestep that plan is something that makes 
the postgum uncomfortable. In particular, there's a Mishnah in Baba Basra in, in the Talmud that says that someone who transfers his assets to an outsider uh, and disinherits his, his children, um, it, it says that Ein ruach that Chazal, that the rabbis are not pleased with that behavior, that it's improper for us to kind of just take into account what we want to do and completely set aside the Torah's plan uh, for for wealth transfer over generations. Um, so that's something that some of the poskim, some of the rabbis have to grapple with. Rav Moshe Feinstein, who who you know who wrote uh, about this problem, uh, among others, he he points out that the Mishnah and Baba Vassar that we just mentioned, that the Chazal are displeased with a person's behavior in in disinheriting his children. That's referring to a situation where. You, your intentions are not positive, where you seek to disinherit certain kids because you like some kids more than other kids. Uh, hopefully that's not the case, but, you know, you never know. Uh, um, and, and so Rabosha Feinstein writes that where your intentions are negative, where you're, where you're trying to, you know, to do things in a negative way and trying to disinherit children, that's where, that's where that mission is, uh, comes in, and, and that's, that's where... Chazal and the rabbis are displeased with your behavior. But if your intentions are positive, uh, then that's fine. He, he, he does point out, however, that you should set aside a certain symbolic amount uh, to follow the, the Seder Nachla in the Torah, the, the Torah's order of inheritance. So, for example, if you take $1,000 of your multi-million dollar estate, uh, God willing, uh, and you say that my firstborn son should get a double portion of this specific uh, amount, you know, that's one way to, uh, uh, to, to kind of pay at least a, um, a symbolic, uh, you know, a symbolic uh, reference, a, a symbolic reference to, to what the Torah expects. Rabbi Mordechai Willig um, has suggested that perhaps uh, bequeathing some of your extra svarim, or some, you know, some of the svarim, the Bukhor gets a few extra svarim, um, uh, you know, more so than, than other sons. That's maybe one way of just dealing with that symbolic issue. Um, but but I, I should also say that across the board, the rabbis really uh, view this as an acceptable uh, mechanism, that is the Shar Chatzizachar, and more than an acceptable mechanism, they say that you're not doing any, any extra mitzvah, you're not uh, doing anything right by uh, following the Torah's uh, approach uh, to this way. You know, if you were to disinherit, if a person in, in contemporary times uh, living in America would disinherit his daughters or would give his Bechor Pishnayim, if he would give a double portion to his firstborn son, that really would just be a recipe for disaster, for family strife. Um, Rav Yechiel Michal Tachashinsky, who's the author of the Gesher Achayim, which is one of the authoritative svarim on uh, the rules of Avelis, of, uh, of mourning. He actually writes in the introduction to his discussion on this issue of, of inheritance. He tells a story about a, uh, a family where the, the father thought it would be a great idea to, to follow the Torah's state uh, or the Torah's order of inheritance, because he thought that that would be a, you know, an, extra, um, an extra refined practice. Um, and the result was that the Torah, that the family just you know suffered from uh, horrific uh, fighting and infighting, and it, it was just a recipe for disaster. And Rabbi Tukhashinsky, who tells that story in his 
in his sefer, he's not a what you'd call a modern Orthodox Jew. He's a an old-time Yerushalmi, yeah. lived in the early 20th century in Yerushalayim. Um, so we're not talking about a particularly uh, modern Orthodox practice. This is really across the board as, as a, a recipe for appropriate uh, appropriate you. inheritance. Okay, but unfortunately we are out of time. This was really fascinating to listen to. Um, I sure learned a lot, um, and this is not something that I don't know, I think people know too much about, so um, we really appreciate your time um, to educate our audience um, and wish you uh, much Hatzlacha in continuing to serve uh, the community um, as the director of the Benson of America. Okay, thank you very much. The forms are available, by the way, on our website if anyone's interested in, in downloading the forms. It's a, it's a very simple mechanism as I mentioned, and you could really just sign the form and do it that way. It's on our website. It's www.bestin.org. Okay, excellent. Uh, www.bestin.org. Okay, excellent. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.